welcome to another episode of Across the Line. Uh, we've got a great episode for you today. We travel to Australia. Well, we don't actually travel, but we check in with David Perkovich, uh, former Kaya coach and a uh, longtime servant of the game. Um, has been coaching for a very long time and has plenty of insights, uh, both of the game here and in Australia. And we get an opportunity to catch up with him. This was your former coach, Chris. Yeah, it was really good to catch up with Dave. Uh, it's been a while since he's been uh, on the Philippine football scene, so it was lovely to get a catch up uh, with him, just finding out a little bit about his experiences in Australia, what he's currently up to, and then giving him an opportunity to um, give an account of his time here in the Philippines, which uh, evidently he had a fantastic time. So uh, I hope the listeners will enjoy this because I think it's, uh, again, a great insight into what it's like to be a coach in the Philippines always perceptive, always eloquent in the way he delivers his messages. Uh, It's a fantastic listen and we hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy this episode, please do subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, uh, Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook and on Twitter. Without further ado, we've got David Perkovich on the show. Enjoy. Today we are traveling down under with David Perkovich in Australia, uh, old friend of both myself and Chris, and we had an opportunity to catch up today. So how's it going, Dave? Very good. Um, obviously, like the Philippines, we're in quarantine here as well. So, um, you know, the lack of football has been uh, a bit of a struggle, but um, family's all healthy and well and just trying to be patient as much as possible. Chris Greatwich with us as always this time in the kids' room today. How's it going been, over there, Chris? Yeah, I've been I've been bumped I've been bumped from the um from the from the office. So I'm in the I'm in my two year old's bedroom, which is why we've got some of the uh, balloons in the background. It's not my usual taste for decor, but um, yeah, I'm not as, I'm not as trendy as Dave with his you know his album covers and whatnot in the background. But um, yeah, it's just it's nice to see uh, to see Dave uh, looking well though. It's, it's great to have you on. I know you've. Um, I know you've listened to quite a few of the episodes and I know you've been quite active in, in doing some podcasts um, recently. So I just thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to catch up with you, see, how, see what you're up to and also reminisce over some of your, um, you know, seminal moments that you had while you were here in the Philippines. It'd be nice to relive some of those moments, Dave. Uh, my pleasure for um, being on the show. I really appreciate it. So what's going on, Dave, with you at the moment? So you said you're in lockdown, but I know that Australia have... Um, talked about sort of easing some of the um, restrictions and, and you said that potentially you guys might be going into to training again next uh, next week. Yeah, look, um, in Australia, our numbers have been um, uh, quite low for a, a fair few days now where we're only getting, you know, dribs and drabs of new viruses um, in the country. Uh, I think at the moment we've only got 500 confirmed cases in the right around the country um, that still remains. So, which is quite quite positive, um, and they know who they are. And there's we've got one of the best uh, testing rates in the world. Um, New South Wales, which is where I live in the state, the state in of Australia, has got the best testing in the world in terms of uh, per capita um for our state um so that's quite nice to be living in an environment that you have mm. these kind of capturing uh these uh viruses but um but yeah restrictions are going to be eased on friday um where we can start um, congregating in groups of 10 so we're expecting um our footballing body uh football new south wales to make some recommendations on how we go back to training and there's some rumors that we'll be able to do that in groups of 10 as of next week but nothing confirmed yet but that's what we're hoping for so, so talk to us a little bit about your 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 current role because 
you know, obviously most of the listeners will know you from being the, the, the kayak coach from, you know, a few years back, but you, you have a new role now. Um, and do, do you want to talk, talk to us about your, your, your current position at Spirit? Sure. Um, so at Spirit, I'm the first grade coach. So I coach the, the men's team, but I also am the senior technical director of the senior program, which includes 18s and reserve grade. Um, uh, our club is quite um, professional in the sense that uh, what they provide us in terms of uh you know, uh, ability to do our jobs well is fantastic. Um, we have GPS monitors. We have athlete monitoring programs. Um, we've got little apps on the players' phones where they wake up in the morning and tell us how they feel and uh, whether they're feeling ill, whether they're feeling good, whether they're feeling sore, whether they're feeling injured. Or, and it's got a little body on there to itemise <laughs> which areas of the body that they're not feeling well. Um right. We have one of the best sports scientists in the world as a consultant of our, at our club, Dr. Craig Duncan. He was, um, you know, with the Australian national team when we won the Asian Cup. Um, he's, okay. I don't know if you saw any reports, but he's the guy, he's the genius that had these special glasses for when um, the Socceroos was flying um, around the world in World Cup qualifiers and everything else like that. So okay. he's, he's a genius of a person. So here we have him as a consultant. He... Um, what we know about our place is incredible. Um, so uh, it's it's a fantastic uh, place to be in. And they and they play in the NPL, correct? Yeah, we play currently. Yeah. We're in the NPL two, um, so yeah. which is second level. Um, the competition has changed a little bit um, from last year to this year. Uh, we had fourteen teams in the competition. That's changed to twelve. Um, they wanted it a little bit like every league to have the same amount of teams. I was a little bit disappointed in that because it obviously reduces the number of games. But uh, one of the positives was that they've um, increased the number of teams with the opportunity to get promoted and relegated. Um, So there's one and a half spots now available for promotion and obviously one and a half to get relegation. So um, otherwise, it's only one team that goes up, one team that used to go down previously. And, and just in terms of like the, the Australian pyramid structure, that sits – so the NPL is one level Under the A-League. from the A-League. And correct. then obviously that's, that's then regionalised, correct, across yes. all of Australia, right? That's right. Um, so you've got every state that runs their own NPL. Um, yeah. And at the end of the regular season, um, we have all the winners of the individual state NPLs that have a kind of a playoff to see who the national champion is yeah. in that second tier. Yeah. And like what, what one thing I, I noticed, because I had some friends who went over and played at the NPL level and I think obviously different states have a different sort of level, I would say, in terms of how, how competitive I would envisage and imagine, judging by people who I've spoken to, that the New South Wales NPL network is is one of the strongest. I mean, you probably say it is the strongest, right, um, mm. uh, across Australia. But there's a lot of players who are playing at that level who are more than capable of playing in the A-League. You know, it, it's then probably to play at that level versus playing in the A-League because maybe they have a, another job or another career or circumstances dictate that they can't commit to a full-time um, professional career in, in the A-League and, and opt to play at that level. But they are more than capable in terms of ability-wise to, to play at a higher level but choose not to. So I think yeah. we need to understand that with the level that you're coaching at. It's, it's a high standard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the... I suppose the difference, it's a little bit strange in Australia. We don't have promotion relegation into the top tier as yeah. yet. 
Um, there's a lot of talk about introducing that. Um, but you're 100% right. You could have some players that's earning more in the second tier than in the first tier. Um, and that's because of a combined income. Um, so they might get it offered a uh, entry-level role at A-League level, which is about $80,000, I think, roughly. Yeah. Um, and their combined income with football and outside of football could be 150, 200 grand. So yeah. they opt to have, play at that level where it's still very, very competitive, um, but obviously not professional. So um, still they train, we train three times a week and then play okay. on the weekend. So yeah. um, we're only really a couple sessions off um, being yeah. a professional environment in a lot of countries. Um, but yeah, it, it, the standard is quite high. Um, this season I had Jason Dion joined um, from the Philippines and um, he was quite surprised with the level of football um, that uh, he was introduced at. So uh, he said a lot of these players could play anywhere. Um, yeah. He was comparing it to like 30 um, Dutch leagues. So uh, it's quite a good standard. So there are eight other divisions, is that correct, in the, in the NPL in Australia? So, no, there's quite, there's quite a bit. So just in New South Wales alone, you've got four tiers of NPL. So you've got NPL oh, wow. 1, 2, 3, and 4. Um, and then in every other state, you've either got one or two or three tiers. So I'm pretty sure there's three tiers in um, in Victoria, two tiers in Queensland, and um, and one tier in every other state outside of Northern Territory. Wow. That's yeah. a lot of competition. And some, and he, a lot of football. Yeah, and you've got some really, really seasoned clubs in there as well. Like one, one of my friends, he, he was at Brighton with me, goalkeeper, and he went out and played for Melbourne Knights. And he, he said, like, he, he couldn't believe like, there's, it's such a historical club. Um, yeah. Is it Croatian? Is it of Croatia? I think now they Melbourne Croatian Knights. Yeah, right, so- right. It, yeah, so he was saying, like, historically, it's one of the, I think, is it always or one of the biggest clubs in Australia, despite the fact they're not in. In the A-League. Absolutely. So um, previous to the A-League, because the A-League's been running for about oh, 15, 16 years, um, yeah. previous to that, the National League was called the NSL. Um, and okay. a lot of these NPL clubs still feature in the, um, well, was in the NSL. So your Melbourne Knights, your Sydney yeah. United, your Marconis, your Sydney Olympics, yeah, yeah. they were huge clubs back then. Um, and they're still quite considerable clubs now. Um, yeah. Their member base uh, uh, is quite substantial, um, so they're still well followed. And that's why I think there's a lot of talk uh, in Australia about trying to get this promotion relegation because it gives these historical clubs a, an opportunity, potential opportunities to get promoted into the top tier. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting setup, the Australian League, because obviously there are so many logistical factors that play into that as well, you know, that such a broad expanse of geography that you have to deal with, you know, which logistically it makes it very difficult. So, and I've said this for a long time, you know, a regionalized system, I think works, works best when you're, when you're faced with so many logistical difficulties. And then one of the things that Jing and I have discussed many, on many occasions is when you're living in an archipelago, like we are in the Philippines, that those, you know, what might seem like a, a short trip, it, it, you know, it encompasses, right, you have to have a flight, you have to have hotels. Um, what if your flights are delayed, you know, and all of these things become huge factors alongside other things like the, the cost, just the simple logistics of the cost of flying an entire team down to, to play a home and away game. And, um, you know, obviously we've gone back to that more regional format that, that you had when, when, when you were here in, um, in the Philippines, but it's just interesting to see how, how you guys in Australia have done it. And, and it seems like it's, it's still a work in progress. 
And uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it kind of develops here in the Philippines, because I think that type of platform would, would work best with, you know, regional competitions converging on some sort of national championship. Um, and as you alluded to also, it, it gives you that sense of community as well. You know, like I said, yeah. Melbourne, Melbourne Knights having that real strong connection with the, with the Croatian um, contingent that, that are from that community. You know, I think it would be the same here in the Philippines if you had that, you know, people from Iloilo being, you know, very, having that sense of pride. If you're from Dabo, having that sense of pride in your team from your community. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah, we, we sort of tried that model, didn't quite work, going back to a more regionalized setting um, now here in the Philippines. But I think in terms of a model, I think that, that moving forward, that, that'd be a nice thing for us to aspire to moving forward. Because I think without that, that sense of community, I think it's going to be very hard for football to develop and football to grow here. So it's interesting to hear you discuss it and talk about it in yeah, Australia. A hundred percent. I think... It, it can be um, – well, in Australia, it was very much um, the pride and the demise of football um, because the old NSL had its issues as well, which why, which is why um, that was, the, you know, uh, a flawed sort of uh, uh, program. Um, right. And then – and there was at times a little with those communities uh, being very um, – you know, passionate about their own communities. There was even some, you know, violence that uh, entered <laughs> at that point in crowds and everything else like that. So um, I think that's where kind of the A-League started because every every club was brand new, um, started from scratch. So, But now I think football's grown to a level where uh, it has to embrace its history. Um, we're at a, very much a crossroads in our football as well as the Philippines. Um where, you know, this virus obviously has put a spanner in the works in every league around the world, but financially our, our game has had a massive impact. Um, so they're looking at, uh, they're taking this opportunity to look at what, what is the best way forward um, for football in this country. So um, in some instances we share the same challenges. I'm interested to know, Dave, like how many people come out to these matches um, for, for your games? Yeah, it ranges. Um, f- for my games, it's when we have club days, you could have, you know, up to a 1,000 people there, um, which is not too bad. Um, but then you have some of these other clubs that you – like we, we have a great competition called the FFA Cup, and uh, FFA Cup crosses with all forms of the game. So you can have your uh, social football team playing, uh, you're competing. It's a, it's a very much similar like the FA Cup in England where you have um, your lower tiers of competition and they battle that out in the early rounds and if you somehow get through, you can play some of the bigger clubs. Um, and then you often have um, NPL teams playing against A-League teams. And when I first came home from um, the Philippines, I was uh, fortunate enough to help out a, a local club here, Sydney United. They wanted me to help prepare them to play um, Sydney FC, which was an A-League club. And at that particular game, I think there was 15,000, 16,000 people um, watching that game. So uh, it, you can have quite um, uh, good crowds. 
Um, and th- we have uh, every game is on uh, the first tier of MPL is live on YouTube, live on Facebook as well. So if you can't get out to the games, you can definitely watch it via those um, channels, online channels. So, yeah, it's closely watched. And sometimes, yeah, it's a little bit, it's considered sometimes a little bit more passionate than the A-League as well because you've got that sense of history with those clubs. So um, it's quite an interesting um, platform of football. Mm. Yeah, as Chris mentioned, it is something that, you know, I'm really interested to see if it is possible at all to be able to set up the competitions that way regionally and be able to move, you know, just have the champions of Iloilo go up against the champions of Bacolod and then, you know, have the champions of Luzon play uh, the champions of um, the the teams in Laguna or something like that. I really do think that would be not only a good way to get communities involved, but to get the regional FAs used to uh, the organization required in order to run these competitions, in order to get their acts together so that um, on a national scale, it'll be so much quicker, the development, if all the regional FAs are capable of running their own competitions and dealing with all the issues that come with running competitions. You know, it's not easy. So um, I really do think that's the way forward. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, it needs to be one uh, top level down in terms of governance because we have a problem in Australia where we have too many governing bodies that no one answers to each other. So you have the FFA who runs football on a national scale, but um, you have the state entities, um, so your different regions, uh, if you rather. Um, they don't necessarily have to follow um, what the FFA says. So they've got their own entity, <laughs> their own board of directors. And so it's a little bit fractioned in that sense and it's been like that for a long time. Um, they do tend to work cl- with each other more than ever now, but I, I, there's a lot of argument to say, you know, they, the state, the regional entities should be just um, following the program or following the wishes of the FFA and just running their programs in a regional sense. But, you know, it's still like what we see in New South Wales may be a little bit different in Victoria. So to have that sort of one governing body saying this is how we're going to roll it and everyone's just following the guidance of one body would be a lot more, lot more concurrent to progression. One of the things that interests me a lot about Australia is that um, you've, I've sort of seen the country become sort of like um, the Cinderella story making it into the World Cup to becoming a country that now expects to be in the World Cup on a regular basis and being extremely disappointed when they don't qualify for for the big stage. Um, I'm sure the transition has been significant and, and, and fantastic to watch um, over there. What has it been like, you know, over the last decade or so watching this transition from becoming, you know, sort of an outsider into uh, an expectant entry into the World Cup? Yeah, sure. Um, so... We in 2006 we qualified for our first World Cup in 34 years, 30, 34 years, 36 years, something all right. Um, so yeah, it was a long time in between drinks. So our first feature was um, a lot long ago, and um, then we had a playoff, which happened. We had playoffs with the fifth ranked South American teams <laughs> for a long time, and. Um, Four years earlier, we lost to Uruguay in a playoff, and then four years later, we were fortunate enough to beat them on the second time. But um, the 2006 World Cup was 
fantastic for our country. It um, really gave uh, football the boost that it really needed. Um, So, yeah, 2006 was a fantastic World Cup in Germany. Um, not only we first qualified for a very long time, but we we had a very difficult group. We had Brazil, Croatia, and Japan. At the time, Japan was uh, the best in Asia. Um, Croatia, obviously, you know, it previously got in the top three in a, in a World Cup, and obviously, we all know how good Brazil is. So, to even just get out of our group, which was uh, amazing, um, to go one nil down against Japan in the first game, and then to win that game three three one, and then losing to Brazil, then having to get a result against Croatia, and then drawing that game two all was fantastic. And then obviously in the se- second round we lost to Italy, who ended up being the champions, and we just lost to one nil in extra time. So um, it was a fantastic um, time to be in Australia and f- being a f- uh, football fan um, then after that obviously we entered Asia because um, we were previously in Oceania and then it became a whole lot of harder um, bef- before to get into that playoff all we needed to do was beat New Zealand pretty much all the rest of the teams weren't nowhere near New Zealand or Australians level so to go into Asia was a fantastic um, opportunity for Australia to have regular good competition games and uh, and it's really gave us an opportunity to really develop our football and we're finding out that Asia is very very difficult and there's a lot of countries that's you know uh, the money that they put into their programs is incredible uh, and we can't match it to be honest Um, but we're finding ways to still compete and still be quite high up and still to expect to get to World Cups, but it's getting harder and harder. And that level of competition is what you need to progress Um, because if it's always too easy to get there, you're never going to progress as a nation. So that that pathway has been fantastic. And, you know, we've had a few nail biters to get into World Cups since 2006, but we're fortunate that we've been in every World Cup since 2006. Um, So... Hopefully that continues to happen, but um, the Asian Cup is another fantastic opportunity for our nation to compete at. And obviously winning it on our home turf was a fantastic uh, occasion as well. What has been the key, you think, in terms of like uh, the development inside the game that's, that's driven you? The, I mean, obviously the competition moving into Asia is a big deal, but the, the, the quality seems to be progressing all the time as well. What do you think has been the key to that uh, in the Australian game? Well, I think a lot of Australians might disagree that our quality is increasing. Um, a lot of Australians are thinking it's actually going backwards. Um, but we had this golden golden generation era uh, in 2006 where we had Harry Kuehl, Mark Viduka, you know, a lot of football, Marco Bresciano, Vince Grella. They all played in top, top leagues in the world. Um, our starting 11, most of them will be playing either English Premier League, Serie A, uh, we even had a couple of players that featured in La Liga as well. So since then, we don't have that many um, playing in top-tier um, competitions anymore, and that's been disappointing. Um, whilst our mid-tier has improved, our top, top-tier has probably come down a notch. We only have two players in the English Premier League in Matty Ryan and um, Aaron Moy. Um, so to try and get a few more, uh, I think in a way, 
uh, with the money that's available in Asia, a lot of uh, players are taking that easy option to go to Asia instead of really battling out in Europe. And, you know, Europe is the standard that you need to be at if you want to be the best. Um, but a lot of Australians are deciding to go to China to go to, uh, you know, Middle East or something like that to get big paychecks, which is available um, to them. So instead of, you know, you had Harry Kill that left our nation at, at a very young age, I think it was 14, 15, to go over to England to try and um, to try and succeed. And Mark Viduka going out in his early 20s to go over to Croatia, then to Scotland, uh, then to England. So you had that, they were battle-hardened, uh, whereas it's a little bit too easy um, now to make money from the game, whereas we didn't, back in those days, we didn't have a professional game here. Um, so the only way you could be a professional is if you left Australia. And I suppose once those guys made that top tier, they lived through hardship and that's really um, was a blessing to them in terms of their football. Um, now we have this issue where our middle tier, as I said, is getting better, but our top tier is not as good. But um, we've introduced a curriculum here in Australia, um, which was a good starting point. It needs to be refreshed. Um, but our, the technical abilities of our younger players are getting better. Um, but we were always known to be a nation that were very physical um, in our football. And when the curriculum came in, we put we had no focus on physicality anymore and it was all about technique. Um, and, you know, generations are changing now. Kids are more in front of computers now than ever before. Um, they're not outside climbing trees, climbing fences like we were when we were kids. So they don't have that natural uh, ability to be physical. Um, so that needs to be put back into our needs to be put into our programs where we never used to have to do that. So at our club, that's one thing that we are very focused on is making sure that our um, younger play, our youth players are physically able to battle uh, and, you know, avoid injury and things like that. So it's, it's, it is a challenge to find where you're at, but it has, it's a fine balance to working on technique and making sure that physically we're up to it. Um, but we, we, we need to embrace our strengths and also develop our weaknesses. It's quite interesting you say that, Dave. Um, I, I was uh, I, I read an article. Um, I think it was written by, or it was interviewed with Danny Tiato, and he was saying that uh, exactly what you were saying. He said it's when he his crop of players came through the system. You know, they were going to. I mean, it was, he was at Man City for a while. Uh, you know, when the Premier League was, you know, with the likes of Man United, Chelsea, you know, Liverpool fighting for champions. League, it was probably the, the, the peak Premier League era, and he was there. Um, he said the Vadukas, the Cures, and, and these types of players. And you know, there doesn't seem to me as many of those types of players anymore, certainly not the Premier League. It was Matty Ryan and, and Aaron Moyer at my old club, Brighton. So I, I, I see those, but even I mean, Matty Ryan's a top goalkeeper. But mm. you know, I look at, I mean, the Australia needs to be inundated with top Australian goalkeepers in, in the Premier League. You know, your Mark Schwartz's, for example, and you just don't seem to, to, to have as many of those guys. And I totally agree. Like I, I see a lot of the Australians there applying their trade in some of these other Asian countries and then perhaps potentially taking the easy route out. And while that's great on an individual level, that probably hasn't filtered through to, um, 
you know, expanding the, the quality at, at the top end with a national team. But, but what, what differences have you noticed off, off the back of Danny Tiato's comments and the ones that you've just said there? What have you noticed in terms of the change in mentality? Like, do, do you think, is it just a generational thing? Is it just a set, case of evolution dictates that it, the, the type of player that you're creating is going to be different? Because I think very similar. I think the Philippines should be creating its own model based upon the type of players that we can produce, based on the, the, the physical composition of the player, based on the mental uh, composition of the player. And, and like you said, Australians typically, I mean, if you look at most other sports, they dominate, you know, uh, rugby, cricket, you know, they have that winning mentality. And, and um, that seems to be lacking a little bit from, from the type of player that I'm used to seeing and envisaging as my kind of archetypal prototypical Australian player that I, I had in my mind based on what I would see as I grew up watching the Premier League in that era. Absolutely. Look, if speaking from that golden generation, you had two players in particular I remember seeing interviewed was Vince Grella and Marco Bresciano, who played 10 more years in the Serie A. Serie A, yeah. And their coaches, I remember they interviewed their, one of their coaches at Parma at the time, and um, I was obviously a lot younger when they were there, but um, I, I'll never forget that they, what, what they said. So what do you like about these Australian players the most? He goes, they're animals. They're absolutely machines, and we're not that anymore. The last probably machine that we've produced, um, uh, I can comfortably say, is Mila Yudinak, um, who was captain of Crystal Palace, uh, yeah. who's now retired. Um, growing up, I played with his brother. He was a couple of tears younger than me, and I got to see his development. And to be honest, as a youth player, he was terrible. Um, he wasn't great at all. But he... I never met a guy that worked hard, harder than this guy. He was just absolutely determined to succeed. And that's the essence of what Australians used to be. Yeah. They just had this never say die attitude and he embraced it so much. And I'll never forget a 2006 World Cup. I was managing, funnily enough, a, music, a musical band at the time and they wrote the theme song to Australia's campaign to the World Cup. And he was at this uh, at this club where they were playing and I got to speak to him and, and I said, how's things going? He goes, good. Um, he was obviously a young lad at the time and he was travelling every single day from s- southwestern Sydney to Central Coast, which is an hour and a half trek um, there and uh, just one way. And he was training with Central Coast Mariners for no money, no nothing at all, um, just training every day for about six months. And um, he ended up getting a contract and not long after that, about a year or so after that, he became captain and then all of a sudden he was overseas and he just... His hard work really paid off um, and he embodied that physical nature of what Australians used to be like. Um, but, yeah, it's, it is a generational thing. I think um, uh, Australian kids are not like what they used to be. So instead of just trying to think of trying to reproduce what we had before, yeah. I think we've got to create a new version of what an Australian footballer is. Uh, technically, they are getting better um, and I feel that our coaching is getting better at a better level now as well. There's better coaches uh, around. Whether it's available at youth level across the, across the platform, I don't know. Um, but I know there's better coaches at, at youth level than when I played. Um, so they have that ability to be there. But I think we need to develop um, players' mentality more than anything. Um, uh, you know, we 
uh, I think younger kids are taking the easy option out a little bit too early these days. And um, but you know, I, I can understand there's a lot of there's a lot of money available in Asia, um, and it, it can set you up for life. So it's a good carrot to dangle in front of players. But there's the, you've got the Matty Ryan's of the world who is just determined to actually succeed at the top, and he's not the tallest goalkeeper. And to be a success in the English Premier League is a credit to his um, his mental um, ability to overcome setbacks. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk a lot about philosophy there, Dave, and I, and I want to I want to segue a little bit out of the Australian um, national team and the Australian system and talk a little bit more about your philosophy because one of the things that I really took from you when when you first came through the door when when you when you signed up with with Kai was this real sense of this is my philosophy, this is how I believe the game should be played, and I'm going to implement this style of play um, with the players that I have at my disposal. And, um, you know, me as a, as a player, I really enjoyed playing un- under that system. But I'd just like to know where that, that kind of philosophy came from. Like, I know you're a huge Barca fan um, and I know yep. you're heavily influenced by, by Johan Cruyff. But what, 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 what was it about that style of play that it sort of inspired you and, and made you want to create teams in that image? It's a very good question. Um, maybe when I started coaching, I was a little bit naive um, and that worked to my credit, to be honest. Uh, I, I had this, like, like as you mentioned, I am a massive fan of uh, FC Barcelona. I started supporting them not in the Pep Guardiola era, it was the Johan Cruyff era. I was a very young, uh, young man or well, young child at the time when um, I started watching them. I was a striker, and what drew me to uh, FC Barcelona was Romario and Stoichkov. Little strikers. I'm not a big yeah. guy. Uh, maybe in the Philippines, I'm more bigger Massive. than that. But in Australia, <laughs> I was always the shortest player, at least ahead, because um, we've got some pretty big footballers out here. So. Um, and I modelled my game off those guys. So I used to watch those guys and I then I started getting encapsulated in their style of play, which i never seen before. You know, yeah. Australia back then was very direct, a little bit more like the old English style. Um, and then I saw a new, a diff, something different. And I suppose that stayed with me all my kind of life. Um, and being this little sort of uh, striker, I didn't have the ability to, you know, power my way through. So I had to work intelligently as a, as a footballer. Um, and I guess uh, I was very fortunate. Some would say unfortunate, but for me, I look at things a little bit differently. I was fortunate that injury um, ru- ruined my playing career at a very early age. And I got into coaching very early. I started coaching at 24. Um, and I suppose around that sort of time is when Pep re-emerged the Barcelona of old. Um, mm. And seeing that style of, flop, of style of football really, um, really drawed me to it. And what drawed me to it more than anything is the ability to beat the opposition with your mind first um, before your football. So, you know, to make the opposition to play differently uh, in accordance to the way you play is ready, you've already won the game. So if your ability to keep the ball is um, f- surpasses the opposition, then they're going to have to try and break what they normally do, which makes them weaker to then try and combat you. And that only plays to your strengths. So I suppose that's one of the things that, and, you know, football is about one ball. And if you have it, you have a greater chance of dictating what happens in the game. And how did that evolve over, over time? Because you said you started at 24. 
going mm. into into full time coaches. What what sort of level were you working with at that age? Yeah, I was working at third tier of football at under fourteens level. Right, uh, um, and then I I've, I've quit. Quite fortunately, I quickly um, came up in the ranks. Uh, the very next year, I took two teams on. I'll never do that again. But I took a sixteens <laughs> team on in uh, second tier uh, and a reserve grade team. So I was training um, two sets of um, sessions a night. So one of the sixteens followed by the reserve grade. And then the very next year, I, play, I coached top tier for the state at under 18s level. Um, and then I took a little bit of a step back because I knew the environment wasn't right for me there. So I went back to second tier level coaching reserve grade, coached there for a year and a half. And then in, I think it was 2011, I got my first first grade gig. Um, I was 29 years old. Um, I had this, I think I backed myself um, naively back then. Um, I really believed in what I was able to achieve as a coach. And I had this sense of, uh, bringing uh, players on the journey with me. Um, and it was something fresh to these players because Australian football wasn't known for the way I envisaged football. So um, they got to see something different. Um, they came on the journey. And then not long after that, I obviously got the opportunity to come to the Philippines, which which was really, for me, creed-defining because in that time that I was in the Philippines, I didn't have another job outside of football, obviously. Mm. Um, and my time away from the football pitch, I really started developing my idea of how to develop tactically uh, or the way football should be played. Um, so what it is even now is way surpassed, uh, you know, my time at Kaya. So, um, but I, I would never be where I envisage football now where I am if I didn't have that time in the Philippines. So I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. How did it come about, Dave? Because I know a little bit about the story of how it came about, but I don't know the full Dave Perkovich version. So how, how did you end up here in the Philippines? So my first gig in 2011, I coached a team called Fraser Park. I took over a relegation team mid-season um, and uh, we battled it out to survive that year. And in that team, I had three Japanese players and one of them was Masanari Urumura. So... Um, Masa at that time barely spoke any English, um, but for some reason, I didn't know it at the time. But he took a real liking to my coaching philosophy and my style of coaching, and possibly my men in management. Even though we couldn't really speak that <laughs> much, um, uh, I suppose he just liked the, my mannerisms and um, the way I conducted myself. But um, just one odd chance, one afternoon, I got a message on Facebook from Masa saying. Uh, hey, Perka, how are you? Um, are you interested in coaching in the Philippines? I said, my first response was, Masa, who's typing this for you? Because <laughs> 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 I've learned English. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so he asked me if I was interested in applying for the job. And I said, look, I'm interested to know more about it. Um, and he asked me to send my resume to Paul and Justin at the time, who was running the club. And... Um, yeah, I did that and almost immediately I got a, 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 an email back wanting to tee up a, a Skype interview. Um, and, yeah, they I'll, I'll never forget part of the process of my interview was they asked me to analyse a football match and it was a Champions League game between Barcelona and AC Milan and I was like, oh, this is right up my alley to analyse Barcelona. So I gave them my feedback on the game. Obviously, it impressed them enough to um, offer me the job. 
super interesting that one that's two of their favorite teams too if i'm not mistaken barcelona <laughs> and ac milan so it's just just an analysis of the game was it a real-time analysis of the game or no it was you... it was post-match because um obviously it was um uh, i got to watch the game in that morning um i think it was around 6 30 champions league games happened in in, in australia and then that afternoon um, I had to give my feedback on the game. And uh, I, st- I still remember my opinions of the game. And it was that era where Cesc Fabregas and Xavi and Iniesta was in the same lineup and they could never quite make it work. And uh, I, that particular game you had um, in the midfield, you had Busquets, you had Xavi and uh, Cesc Fabregas. And in the front three, you had Pedro. Messi was playing as a false nine and he had Iniesta on the left wing. Um, and my argument at the time was... Um, Fabregas was playing the left side of the midfield three and you had uh, Iniesta playing uh, the left wing. And my opinion and uh, at the time was Iniesta likes to drift in off the left side and Fabregas is a, a running midfielder. He likes to get forward. He kind of adapted his game from growing up in Spain and being in Arsenal in English football, he liked to get forward. Um, whereas Xavi kind of likes to sit a little bit deeper as a playmaking midfield. And I was like, they should have just swapped him and Xavi over because then Cesc Fabregas will be allowed to come inside. And uh, Sorry, Iniesta will be allowed to come inside and Xavi won't invade his space. And then Iniesta uh, could have that ability to take that space because Fabregas wasn't uh, occupying it. And then you have Pedro who used to hug the wing a little bit more on the opposite side and Fabregas will be able to drive into that half space a little bit more effectively. But, um, but yeah, uh, that was my opinion. Oh, that, my analysis of that game will never, I'll never forget. <laughs> so then I remember you came probably what, four, three or four games into the season. We'd had a coaching change um, really early on in the season. Um, and you came in. My first game was you were in charge. Um, uh, very so, loosely. I don't want to say I was yeah, in charge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're kind uh, of caretakering. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was life. handling stuff. And I only I came in one session before the game. And That's I right. said to you, I said, look, you run the team the way you think it should be run and then I'll get a feel for the game. And if I need to change anything at halftime, I'll see it Do from it. the sideline and I'll go off the whim there. Um, so you ran that session and I was just kind of observed because – all I got to see was very little of the team before arriving. Um, was it the day before a game? Was it the day before a game? It wasn't the day. The session was the day before the game. Right. So um, it, was just, it was just a walkthrough, wasn't it, really? Correct. The day before, it was right? very, yeah. very obviously light load. Um, I arrived there the night before and I got to see a game at... Um, at McKinley. Uh, you came down, yeah, right? McKinley Hill, um, Imperador Stadium. And... That was my first uh, eye opener to Philippines football, and um, and then we we're playing um, uh, Army. Yeah, was my first game. It was round yeah. six, and I can't remember if we we're winning one nil or if we we're losing one nil at halftime. I think we, we were, were just, winning. I think we were, we were winning. winning one-nil, one-nil, but we weren't, we weren't playing, playing well. No. We weren't playing well. Yeah, we weren't playing well. Um, yeah. And I think I, I tweaked a, a few positional stuff in at halftime, and we ended up winning three nil. But three, still, yeah. it wasn't a great performance, but. Um, it was an improved second half, and then from there it started. And I think that the rest of that season we only lost one game, and that was against Stallion. Who ended up winning the league. Yes. Right? What was your sort of first impressions in those formative weeks and months of being in the Philippines? Like, did you find it a real culture shock? Was it what you expected, or did you go in there completely with like a black... 
eyes wide open. Let's just see what happens. Just try to soak it all in and, and enjoy the adventure. Yeah, it was a little bit like that. Um, I, I suppose, I, I don't know, I, I consider myself quite quite adaptive to my environment. Um, whilst I can be very fixated on um, what I think football should be look should look like, um, in terms of culture, I embrace the Philippine culture a lot. I, I loved my time there. Um, I think the people were fantastic. Um, obviously, I had the Tolentinos looking after me like I was one of their own, and I am forever grateful for that. Um, they made me feel at home, and the players were a joy to, to coach. Um, obviously, my time there, uh, the the squad kind of changed quite considerably from when I arrived to uh, when I departed, but um, I would like to think that, you know, the, t- the team improved over that period of time. But, um, but yeah, it was um, in terms of culture of the country, I, I loved living there. It was fantastic. Um, the players, the football was interesting. Um Obviously, McKinley Hill had this, uh, it was a compact uh, stadium and a, a very tight areas. It was a small field. Um, I would have loved to have an opportunity to coach on the bigger fields. I think the style of football I like to play um, would have been enhanced playing at a couple of the bigger stadiums where the dimensions of the field is a lot bigger. So, yeah, you have a lot more space. Um, but... Um, but yeah, well, we're able to impose the the, the philosophy there, and was some really great highlights um, in that in that time period. What did you think of the level when you got here? What, did, was it what you expected? Better, worse? What, what was your sort of? To be honest, I, I I didn't know what to expect, so I didn't no. have uh, I didn't have a um, idea. I, to be honest, I had an idea that the level would have been higher than I was currently coaching. Um, and whilst I probably would say it was, um, it, it, I think it was not necessarily from a technical aspect because um, you, whilst you had some players like yourself and quite technical, um, you know, and you had some players that came in from overseas. In my first season, there was no, um, there was very little, if any, um, restrictions on foreign players. Um, so you had a, a, a you know, a lot of quality players that came in uh, Philippine football at that, that, that era. Um, so there was a lot of technical players uh, there. Um, but I wouldn't say the difference was technically, it was probably fitness um, because I was coaching semi-pro, um, training three times a week. And whilst, you know, the fitness levels of Australia at that level has improved immensely, um, the ga- speed of the game was quite incredible. And I think... Parts of that was because it was pro footballers training every day, but the other part of it, I think, was because it was a small field. You're only covering small distances, so it was re- it was almost like a eleven uh, eleven v uh, version of futsal. Um, it was because the areas were so tight, um, you can cover distance quite quickly. So it was adapting to that uh, those environments. Yeah, that was yeah, important. it was quite it was quite an interesting like trying to. Uh, recall that first period that you were there because I even look at sometimes you look at coaches and you think they work in sort of segments but, and I even look at your time it was quite segmented even though you're yeah. only there for a short period of time but that first um, period that you were there you had this squad that you knew ultimately we were probably going to get rid of almost everybody like I remember having a meeting with you it was almost halfway through the season you were like Chris after squad's going to go Right? Yes, because there was the we, it's it's not one the players who don't fit my philosophy. Two, 
we're just carrying too much dead weight. So we're going to completely, yeah. ch- and I even remember there was like sessions where it was just be a fight club because people just like, we want to get a new contract. And it was, it was, it was pretty hairy at times because the, the intensity was arguably higher than it was in the games, which I, I think exactly was quite hard for you to manage. Yes. Really quite hard for you to manage because you're trying to watch it from as a coach and you're sort of withdrawn from it. But I remember being in it thinking, oh my God, like, I've got to perform in this training session. Otherwise, yes. It's going to be a big problem because yeah. people are after the and there's challenges flying in. I remember a couple of games in. I, I, I think you guys started off pretty poorly in one of the games, and uh, at halftime, I let a rip. I said, "You guys are willing to kill each other at training, but you're not willing to kill your yeah. opposition." Just remember, you're fighting for what's the badge on your shirt. Um, and obviously, we saw a change in the in the second half. But yeah, it was it, it was um, it was quite a unique experience that first season. Um, yes, there was there was a lot of good people there. And obviously what one thing I took away from that experience of that first season is the willingness of a, of a pro football willing to fight for their contract. Um, and you de- you could see that in the training sessions. Yeah. They were like, I'm going to really try my hardest to play on the weekend because I want to earn my contract for next season. Um, but, yeah, there was a lot of players that didn't really fit the mould whilst there were – and what people don't necessarily realise is that if a coach doesn't select you um, moving forward or whatever, it doesn't mean you're not a good player. You just might not be a decent player in that type of team that, you, that the coach is mm. trying to formulate. So I think that happened with a lot of our players at that time. And then, uh, and ov- obviously the rules changed as well. We had visa yeah. issues as well. So that's why a lot of the players had to go as well. So, um, yeah, it definitely was... A, a, different periods within that uh, year and a half that I was yeah. there. Um, yeah, it was quite interesting. Because the second year was completely different. Like, I look back to that team. So we, then we had that little cup run, didn't we? Because it was kind of broken down into two seasons. We had the cup run where yeah. we got beat. We got beat in the... Uh, I think you weren't there. I think you I were, you I were on my, your license, on my license. Finishing yeah. license or something. So you weren't there. We lost the Air Force. And so that that was like two, three months completely wasted off the back of a ridiculous result. Really huge, huge disappointment for us. I think Moralco ended up winning the cup, which was a travesty. And then <laughs> you basically set about rebuilding the team for the um for your first full fully fledged season. And all I can remember from that um campaign was that was the first time I really felt like, right, we've we've got a genuine chance here. I feel like we've got mm. pieces of the puzzle in place. I feel like you've had enough time to embed some of your ideas and then you've brought in players who who can fit yep. your style of play. Obviously, at the time, you, you, you carried yourself as, look, we've got a chance here. But did you genuinely believe that that was a team that was capable of, of winning the title that, that season? Yeah, I think... Um, trying to take it back a little bit, my first period of the season where we had what we had and then the window opened. So I I see my period as the very initial part of the, when I took over till halfway through the season of the first season. Then in that mid season window, we signed some players like Fabian Lewis, Daniel Lenny, they, the players that came in. And then that was that second half of the season was the second period. Um, And then we had that cup period and then we had that final 
season. Um, yeah, so yeah, four four different four different periods basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> within a year and a half, so it was quite incredible. It seems a lot longer than that uh, when you look at it into those periods. But um, but in entering that um, season in two thousand and fourteen, I th- I, I think entering that league, I was very confident with our starting eleven. But I knew if key players got injured, we didn't have depth like some of the other clubs did. Um, and But I knew our starting 11 could be the best starting 11 of any other team in, the, in that competition. I suppose where part of the problem came in is that we had a severe injury to Richard Greer. He did his ACL and um, that moved you back into that six role and then I was missing something in that eight role um, that you were playing in that second season. Um, and then we obviously had... Um, Pablo broke his arm, and so he missed a period of that um, that that season as well. And he was our highest goal scorer. Um, but uh, I, I, if what could have happened uh, if those two players played because they were very important to the way we played. You know, obviously a number nine is very important, and you don't have um, too many visa players, and there were two of the visa players that were there. Um, and whilst the local players, the Filipinos are the core of what you do. You try to f- fill in the, uh, the, the, the visa plays in where you're weak um, in your team. So, uh, it, yeah, I felt that our starting 11 could beat anyone. And we had some great performances. Like I remember that we played um, global and that second game was, I think it was the second or third game, and we were really hard done by because we were absolutely annihilating in that first 10 minutes and then, OJ got wrongfully red carded and it wasn't a decision where the referee, well, he did make a mistake, but he got a mistake in the rules of the game where he handballed the ball and sent him off where it's supposed to be just a yellow card. So I think that kind of, you know, made gave global the upper hand. And from there, we really couldn't get a grasp of it again. So, but we had some really fantastic performances. I remember twice we came back from behind, I think it was in the first season, but um, against Global World, 2-0 down after 10 minutes and we ended up winning those games 3-2. There were quite some memorable games. And then uh, mem- probably the most memorable goal was your goal against Archers, um, where I'll, I'll never forget it. You know, the ball came across and you did an overhead kick and it went in the back of the net and you went mental. <laughs> You ran more yeah. in your celebration than in the game. That sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> I remember that game. It's quite funny. I remember that game for a number of different reasons. And that the overhead kick is probably not the most memorable thing about that game. I, I was playing six for Dave at that time. And Massa was number 10, believe yes. it or not. So yes. Massa was playing number 10. And I don't know what conspired during the course of that game. But after about 60 minutes, I ended up, playing number 10 for some reason I don't know if Massa had to move back for an injury oh no was it that wasn't that was that when he got his head injury or, or something happened anyway but I ended up having to oh, play number yeah, 10 for one. actually was that it right something like that yeah, like, I think that might have been with his head because he was definitely off he was on the side because he was celebrating when I scored the goal and I've got the picture Correct. but I ended up moving into number 10 and I scored two goals in like 15 minutes I'm like dear I told you Dave I've got to play here <laughs> and then um but Obviously, we score in the, in the you know ninety third minute, and you think you're going to score score the, the winning goal, but of course, no, we don't. We concede one in the ninety fourth minute, straight from yeah. the freaking free kick. That's so, um, no, it was going back to your. I mean, that because that, that was that, that was the first season, and that was mm. that was a really fond memory. But I can remember in that second or your first full season, shall we say, 
in, mm. in 2014. I can remember, I remember that global game. And even though we lost it, I remember everyone thinking, okay, Kai's legit. Kai's, yeah. Kai's got hard done by there and they're going to be a big problem for, for everyone. Like you, you could definitely get that feeling. And then I think we beat global maybe in the second round. And then I think we beat, um, I think we beat Loyola. We beat in Loyola the in the, yeah, first of all, the end, going into the last the first round. Yeah, I, I, I thought we played three rounds. I thought we played three rounds in that. Could have been, yeah, yeah. could have been. So, yeah, so I think it was the end right. of one of the rounds. And I remember we were like a point behind Global, and I was yep. like, "We're on it here. We, 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 yeah. We've got a really good chance." And I thought we we built really good momentum. Pablo was on fire. Um, Pablo was a great sign, and he was on fire. Rich was because he had a bit of a slow start. Rich, because I remember he he was he was he felt as though. The centre backs weren't giving him the ball, and he wasn't able to dictate the tempo. And then it sort of took him a bit of time for for the centre backs to trust him. And obviously, once he found his rhythm, he was a top. I mean, best best six in the league by yes. a mile. Um, so we had those those components of the team firing really really well. And I just felt now we, we've we've got this we've got this league, and we can, if we can continue to build on this momentum, I I, I thought we were gonna we were gonna we were gonna win it. I don't know if you remember that week where Rich did his knee, Pablo broke his arm, but I also got injured in the Stallions game as well. I did that. Uh, I got a horrific tackle by Diop. I still got the scar on my leg. Yep. And I remember I, I actually, so that was all in this, within the space of a week. So that might've been within the space of three games of each other. Cause we would often play Wednesday, uh, Wednesdays, Saturdays. Yep. And then we play three subsequent subsequent games off the back of that. So that Stallions game where I had to get stretched off, we drew. And I think we lost to Green Archers 3-2 in a real – it was an awful game. Yeah. Um, and then because we dropped points in those two games and the shortened season, it just meant that we were out of the running at that point. Yes. Uh, and, we, you know, with, and with those key, key players out, we just weren't able to to make up the ground, and I think and it was a really sad way to finish because we were on such a such a positive note. Yes, going into that final round, and and whilst you weren't out for that long, but um, even when you came back, it's you were able to play, but you weren't hundred percent for a while. Yeah. Um. So we we're probably only seeing a sixty percent Chris Greatwich as opposed to a hundred percent. Um. But, you know, off the back of what you're saying about Rich, I know Rich, part of Rich's success was a lot down to you because, you know, uh, I remember when he came into training, he told me this uh, probably after my reign, um, uh, a long time after, when he f- first couple of sessions in here, I mean, you know, obviously you get to know who's who in the squad pretty quickly mm. and he knew your background quite quite a lot. And then, you know, and then he saw how you grafted in, in football games and in training, and he was like, "Well, I, I, I can't," because I think he got in the comfort zone in Australia because he was right. virtually A league quality, and he got his osteitis pubis that forced yeah. him out of top tier, and then he was playing second tier, and he was just in second gear in sec in second tier, um, and then when he came over, he probably still had that mentality, but then he saw Chris Great, which like busting his backside to you know in training sessions and in games, and he goes, "Well." This guy's done way, achieved way more than me. I, I have to work hard, and that's when he started really ramping it up. 
um, and started demanding more off the centre backs and got in. I suppose you know, like coming to a new country and adapting to a new footballing environment, it's no, never going to happen straight away. But I felt that all the foreigners, especially Pablo, whoa, the guy was incredible. Yeah. Very, and everyone was scared of him, especially Loyola. I remember yeah. every time he was on the pitch. I remember the very last game of the season. He was his first game back from his broken arm and he was yeah. on the bench. And they oh, they went 2-0 up or something and then he came on and the game completely changed. They just yeah. were so scared of him. But, yeah, good memories. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the overriding themes that I had in my time, probably more so with you in, in, than any other, was totally agree with the whole best 11 we're the best 11 in the league in my opinion if we'd have kept the best 11 um out on the pitch every game i think we would have won at least one maybe two league titles in that in that period uh that's that's just my opinion i I always felt we had maybe a cup and a cup and a a league title i just felt like we 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 didn't have the the strength in depth you know i i I know that you're only there for for a year and a half is is that something that you found frustrating in 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 your in your time here? And did did that have any sort of bearing on the the duration that you stayed here, or was it more of a case of your, your family circumstances dictating that you had to call time on your on your Philippine oh, adventure? Def- definitely, the number one reason was um, my wife and I were at an age where if we we're going to start a family, we we're, were going to do that fairly soon, um, and. You know, it was very much my decision to come home to start family because I wanted my kids to be born in the country that I was born in. Um, so that, that was probably the, the biggest uh, reason why I come home. I suppose the only frustrating part of my time in the Philippines, and it was just the time period of uh, Philippine football and what the a club could uh, was able to do is that, you know, now I look at Philippine football and I looked at even when you were in charge of Kaya and I looked at all your staff on the sidelines and I was like, geez, what I would give to have that because I was by myself. I didn't have any assistant coaches. All I had was yeah. a figure, Um And you had no sounding board. And whilst you had some players that are fantastic in the level that they played, i.e. yourself, felt always a little bit comfortable, uncomfortable having a sounding board as a player. Yeah. Um, because uh, it's just not no- a normal situation. Um, so if I was able to have um, some staff, I think the level of training sessions would have been able to um, – one thing I've learned from my experience in yeah, Kaya is that whilst I was – I felt that my definitely my strength, as we talked about earlier, was my philosophy and my tactical side of things. Um, I felt that I could improve a lot in terms of my training sessions, but – you know, what I had to kind of forgive myself for is that I was only limited to what one person could do. Um, so that, that was the biggest challenge in terms of training. You had 22 players and one coach. Um, or sometimes in that first season, we had 25, 26, 27 yeah, players. And, and the rest. Massive squad. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I suppose uh, it kind of uh, was uh, a little bit disappointing that I didn't uh, actually get to – uh, get a title or something like that before I left, but um, that's the way life is sometimes. What was your uh, fondest memory that you took back with you from your time here in the Philippines? He's already said, Jing, he said, My overhead kick was the greatest <laughs> moment of his whole, oh, whole time. Oh, there. that's right. <laughs> um, that's right. 
to be honest, um, f- footballing memory um, moments, um, probably those two global games, um, losing 2 0 to, at the time, they were the biggest club in, in the country uh, in terms of, you know, they were flying it when I arrived. Um, and I think it was only my third or fourth game in where we played global and we'll de- we beat Army and then we didn't really have any difficult games leading up to that game. Mm. Um, and that was the first real tester. And I remember being on the sideline, being a bit nervous and the game started and after 10 minutes we were down 2-0. Um, but we found, I think in that first game, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, did you score it before halftime? I can't remember. Uh... I know I, I scored. In, I, I scored in one of them. It was a penalty, but I think that, that was the second. The sec- I think that was the second game. Could have been OJ, actually. I don't think I scored in the first game. I remember Berkey scoring on a, a two oh, off, off of a yes. couple of really bad defensive errors, and he capitalised. Yeah. I think right. that was yeah. the first goal. So we score right before half time. Um, and then that half time team talk was so much easier because we got back into the game. And then second half, there was only one team that was going to win the game, even though we're still behind. There was only one team trying to win it, um, and that was us. And um, that was quite memorable. And I remember before that game, I'll never forget, I had, I think it was Justin come up to me about five minutes before kickoff. And I hadn't met Santi yet, who's obviously um, runs, well, financed uh, uh, Kaya, uh, the owner, one of the owners. And, um, uh, Justin came up to me five minutes before the game. Oh, after this game, we're going to uh, Santi's birthday. I was like, okay. And I was like, Derby, geez, I don't want to lose this one. <laughs> uh, didn't want to meet the owner of the club the first, first time and coming off after a loss. So that added to the nerves on the sideline a bit. But um, it was a fantastic. Uh, and up until that point, I didn't think Kyle beat Global in the past two seasons or three, something, some stupid um, uh, statistic, uh, I remember going into that game and we came from 2-0 behind to win 3-2. And the second game that we played them, and it was almost a mirror image of the first yeah. game. We just scored before, and it was your penalty, before half time, And you could see going into the change room that they were like, we can't let what happened in the first game happen again. And we already knew that the game was ours because their mindset, they re- were already defeated before you know, second half even started. So, um, yeah, those two moments stand out the most. Um, but I suppose in terms of a personal satisfaction, in terms of my my job, um, I think the t- style of football from when I entered to when I left um, was definitely, uh, you could see I um, had my influence on, on that team in terms of the style of play. So you went back to Australia after that, started a family. Yes. Um, got back into coaching as well. Um, what did you take with you from your, your time in the Philippines and you implemented over there? Yeah, look, um, uh, I had this uh, newfound belief. Uh, well, I was always very confident in my ability of um, my vision of football, but um, uh, I think the Philippines uh, overall, that experience, and it's not just the football, just me as a human being living in another country, um, the challenges of being away from my wife because she only flew in and flew out basically um, the time period that I was there. Um, and uh, it really grew me as a human being, um, that experience, um, and made me a, little, a lot more resilient. 
Um, so it gave me a new sense of belief that I can do this. Um, and, uh, you know, coming back to Australia, my first coaching job afterward was a disaster. Um, it's the only coaching gig that I've ever left. Um, and so that wasn't great. So, um, you know, coming off a high of coaching overseas and coming back home and having ex- experiencing a disaster gave me, um, I suppose, you know, a sense of reality um, because I came back thinking, ah, oh, I'm, I'm invincible, I suppose, a little bit. Um, I've coached overseas. I can, I can do this. And coming back home and that first experience really put my feet back on the ground. And, um, you know, went, since I've started coaching, and this is my fourth season at, uh, at Spirit now, um, uh, the type of football that we're playing now is, um, is, is fantastic. Um, it's really, you know, uh, taking off on a different level and um, our tactical side of things is really really enhanced and our training sessions has gone to another level we've got psychologists as uh, we've got sports scientists we've got analysts at the club um, and it makes my job so much easier in terms of giving the players um, vision of what what they're able to achieve and um, is 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 fantastic and it's really setting me up for my next um, opportunity in professional football whenever that may happen is that what you want to do, Dave? Because one of the things I'm really interested in when I speak to coaches is, is like, obviously, you, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that you've had quite a lot of say within the club if you have a TD type position as well as being on, um, on the stuff of, 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 of the men's team. Yeah, is that something that you enjoy having that level of responsibility, or would you kind of rather hone in on one particular aspect? Um, of whether it be a TD or whether a head coach and, and how do you see that kind of progressing as you move forward through your coaching journey? Sure. Um, whilst uh, I've been coaching quite a long time now, um, I'm still relatively young in terms of the coaching ranks because I'm only mm. 38. Um, so uh, I have a lot of energy to coach a team. Um, that's where my passion lies at the moment. Uh, I, I do enjoy having that dual role at the moment because I have a lot of influence. Uh, we do have a head of football, but he kind of looks after everything from 16s down. Um, but we definitely feed off each other in terms of he, – because I started uh, before him in his role and uh, I started the implementation of the philosophy and then when he came in, he just jumped on the back of that and really together we've taken it to a new level. Um, we really got bought into we, – we had club uh, club days where we had all the coaches in and really developed the philosophy. We even had AIS coaches come in, look at the, what we're doing and given their recommendations on things. So we've been quite open with um, what we do. Um, and I've shared stuff with you in terms mm-hmm. of our behave, player behaviours that we've developed. Um, having that dual role is quite good because then you have an influence of how the rest of the club looks like because you end up – you end up wanting to produce your own players for your first grade. And, um, you know, we want to produce players not just for our first grade but to, for professional football. Um, but, yeah, my, my ambitions to coach, um, you know, first-team football uh, in a professional environment again. Um, whilst I'm very um, thankful for the position that I ha- have and it's allowed me to grow even further, um, I do have that burning desire to be a first grade coach. I think in maybe 20 years' time, that TD role will be better suited to me when I've, you know, uh, kind of fed all my, um, you know, 
all my experiences in in first team coaching. I think there will be a period of my career that I would like to be just a TD, um, but at the moment uh, my full focus is coaching on you know a first team environment. Yeah, I'm always really interested with that that one, Dave, because you know there's there's always so every year there's there's hundreds thousands of coaches who come onto the onto the market so to speak, and everyone has the same aspirations. We all want to coach at the highest level. And I'm always intrigued to see where people's passions lie, because like, especially with someone like yourself, when, when you've got such a clear vision and such a, a clear philosophy and identity with how you want things to be done, sometimes it's hard to relinquish that control because you, if you have that image in your mind, what it should look like, and you have the capacity to do it on quite a grand scale, sometimes mm. it's quite hard when you have to then have to work with a general manager or a sporting director. Well, no, this is the philosophy of the club. We don't quite see it as aligned as you. And sometimes to you know, in, in pursuing something that you might perceive to be the Holy Grail. Yeah. Sometimes it's not as, as, as um, you know, as enticing or as encompassing as you perhaps would, would like it to be because you're bound by the constraints of, of a club or their philosophy or their guidelines or whatever. So I'm always quite intrigued to see where, where people, um, where people stand within that, that sort of um, those, those margins and, and how they really see where their strongest, you know, strongest suits lie. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you. And to to some respects, I've already experienced that. One of the clubs that I've coached at in Australia, um, I kind of want to in- implement this philosophy on the first team and get the club on board. And I kind of didn't really get the bites from the guys who ran the club uh, as well as I would have expected. And um, it's no wonder that that uh, kind of – because I'm quite um, – assertive when it comes to my beliefs on football and um, I definitely have to fit in the environment but you know I'm very much open to experiencing new things and my journey as a coach is uh, you know uh, is only you know touch scratching the surface you know the way I see it and whilst I have very fixated ideas on the way I would run a team it doesn't mean I would want to experience different experiences either so yeah um, I know my net potentially my next move might be going into an assistant coach which i've never really have done before mm. uh, except except that brief period when i first came back um from overseas so um to see different types of football um uh, would be great um and to see how different coaches handle first team um and there's many aspects to coaching it's not just the tactical side it's the man management it's yeah everything how you manage um staff and i think my other career in in um working for st john ambulance uh in that sort of management sort of role i really have that man management type of role outside of football and that's kind of carried over into into football as well so um using the other experiences to help my football is is great and if i have the opportunity to be an assistant coach um like yourself with the national team being under different coaches, you get to see different things. And then in the back of my head, I'll say, okay, how would this work against me? If I was to implement my own philosophy, how can this, how can I value add into what I believe in? And you take different ideas from everywhere and make it your own. So it's all about that growth um, as a, as a human being and as a coach uh, you can take from experiences. Yeah. And with that, be in Australia, you think? Would, would you prefer to stay close to home or you, would you be open to opportunities abroad and, and have another crack at coaching overseas? Um, I'll, any sort of, uh, I, th- I think it's, there's no sort of fixation on me where where the next 
journey lays um, mm. in terms of professional football. Um, it could be overseas, could be at home, could be wherever. I'm, I'm not really bothered by where it is. I just got to make sure that the environment is uh, is going to challenge me um, and that I, I can value add to uh, the role. And um, if, if those tick those boxes, then, yeah, I'm happy to jump on that journey. So the door is open huh? to, to overseas. Um, is it still um, the attire, long sleeves, white shirts, and, and, and brown pants all the time? <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> These days. <laughs> Getting a bit older now. So, um, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's a bit colder over here in the <laughs> we play football. Um, so overcoats is definitely a feature on the sideline, but um, yeah, I'm always I'm always known to be the best dressed coach, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm so I'm so disappointed, Jing. Whenever I see like these little snippets on like whatever social media, and he's yeah. in like a coat, and I'm so disappointed. I'm like, I've got, I've got to see a three piece or something. Like, just, oh, I can't I can't be dealing with these like boring coats. Like, I need to see some flashy suits. Otherwise, it's just not it's just not Dave Perkovich. But um, no, it's I, I definitely it's absolutely uh, true. You're definitely one of the sharpest dressed coaches on the on the sideline back in the UFL day. So if you didn't take on any real silverware, you were always the best dressed guy, guy on the sideline. Brilliant. I would love another opportunity to have a crack overseas. Um, at the same time, I would love a uh, crack to coach in the A-League as well. So um, whatever comes up, wherever it may be, um, yeah, I'll, I would look into those opportunities. Man, it's going to be interesting to see what is the next step for David Perkovich. Um, it's been cool hang, hanging out and getting an opportunity to, to catch up. It's been a, over an hour now that we've been talking. It just flew by. Um, yeah, anything else that we, we missed out on? Um, anything else you'd like to, to, to say? Dave? Yeah, no, I, I f- uh, follow Philippine football very closely since I've come back. So I know everything that's happening there. I watch it with a very close eye. And I think I will do, I will do for the rest of my life because, um, you know, uh, I hold it close to my heart, my experience there. And um, uh, I continuously watch the Azkals. I watch the league wherever I can. Um, and obviously a lot's changed since I've, uh, I've left Shores as well. So, um, yeah, continually seeing that journey of Philippine football, um, it's taking left turns, right turns um, <laughs> here and there. And um, hope, I'm hoping that, uh, we, like I said earlier, we, Australia is having very similar challenges um, here as well in terms of which way is the best way forward. But um, if good people uh, like yourselves um, are trying to steer the direction of uh, football, then I think it's going to be end up in a good place. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Like, just before we go, I just want to say a huge thanks for or a for you for coming on the show today um, and, and giving us insights on your, your time that you had here and obviously giving us an update on, on the Australian football scene as a whole. But more for me, one of the things having gone from, and at the time I was even transitioning probably more from a player into a coach, even while you were there. And one of the things I really learned from you is how important it is to have a clear philosophy, have a clear idea on how you want to play the game and, and really stick to your beliefs because if you if you do have a real sense of how you think the game should be played then and you're unwavering in that belief 
it, it transmits and it resonates throughout the team. And I think if you look back on the time that we had there, although, yeah, I mean, we can't take much solace in the fact that we didn't pick up any silverware, but the football that we played was 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 the embodiment of, of how you thought the game should be played. Um, and that, I think a lot of times that's overlooked when you're a coach. You know, would yes. you want to would you want to win something playing an ugly style of football? Some people will be very happy doing yeah. that, and and that, and that's that's that's, that's, right. that's their own philosophy, right? And Ooh. there's nothing against that. If if winning is the be all and end all, then that's fine. But there are, there are, there are so many teams. I look at like the Dutch '74 '78 team that will be forever synonymous as one of the greatest teams of 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 all time. Never won a World Cup. Yes. Never want to World Cup. My kids trying to break into the room. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I agree with you. I don't think. And, and sorry, I think it's really important, isn't it, that you that you have that that sort of philosophy, that outlook, and if you win with that, that's massive. That's you know an, an incredible achievement. But I think sometimes even the best best teams in the world don't often win the the big trophies. Yeah. But as long as their style of play is in keeping with the philosophy of of the of the coach or in keeping with the philosophy of the, of the country, I think that's also really really important. I think what it's what, why is that is important is that having a style of play is not just to say, you know, uh, I want to be different. Um, it's because I believe the only way I could succeed as a coach is is that way. Um, I believe that I get better results by coaching that way because I know that way inside out. Um, so if you should always coach for success. Uh, however that looks like. And like you mentioned, some some teams that might be direct, some might be always reactive to the opposition and then you have uh, alternate ways. But, um, yeah, definitely I was quite proud that, you know, looking back at my time in the Philippines and at Kaya, I don't think we the country saw that style of football before I arrived and it kind of opened up to what is possible, that other things are possible. Um, and, yeah, and obviously to see... Some uh, some of the players go on to do some great, have some great achievements. Um, whether that be still playing or coaching, like yourself, um, if I had a small part to play in their journey um, in be- becoming a better human being and better football person, um, then I take extreme pride in that. I always enjoyed getting the opportunity to speak to you after matches. I used to cover all the games, which is, you know, kind of quite a long day. And whenever there was a match, <laughs> really from, now. <laughs> <laughs> from the afternoons all the way to the evening. And I always, you know, whenever I knew that there was going to be a Kaya match and then I'd get a chance to speak to David afterwards, it'd be a nice, eloquent chat, sometimes a fiery chat. But, um, you know, I always enjoyed the opportunity to be able to have some sort of substance to take with me rather than just generic answers and playing to the middle, which was what a lot of the coaches were doing. So, yeah, I always, always look forward to having the opportunity to speak with you today. No different, of course, always, always, always fun and, and a learning experience for myself to, to be able to exchange with you. Yeah, so thanks for the time. Football's uh, an entertainment industry. And sometimes we go, you know, as coaches, we forget that. And I tried to, make my team play an entertaining brand of style of football to watch. And um, same with uh, interviews and things like that. I want to get a good insight to what it is like instead of just being politically correct. So I wish people would take that same line, you know, <laughs> it gets a bit drab sometimes, you know what I mean? So it'd be nice to, to, to stoke some flames from time to time. Definitely needs it here in the Philippines, I would say. You know, people need more reason to follow the game.
All right. Thanks for the time, David. I appreciate it. Um, hope things are going well over there in Australia. And we look forward to, to hopefully following along as you guys open up next week to get back onto the training pitch. We're just hoping Thank that we get an much. opportunity to do, to do the same uh, thing soon. And this forced time off has been uh, been a struggle for us all football people. So uh, everyone's eagerly anticipating to get back onto the pitch. David Perkovich on Twitter, on Instagram as well, is it? Yes. For people who want to follow along. Um, yes. Yeah, easily followable and uh, quite active as well. So you guys will get an opportunity to follow along and see how things are going in the world of football in Australia. All right. Uh, Chris, anything else? No, I just want to say a huge thanks to Dave for making the time to speak to us. I know he's an avid listener of, uh, of the show, so great to, uh, to finally get him on. Uh, it's been a great chat. Um, thanks for uh, yeah for giving us so much information and reminiscing about some of those fond uh, fond memories, namely my goals. I appreciate that the most. So as <laughs> always, later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. I'll team up for a couple in the next one. All right, but no, thanks a lot, Dave. We really appreciate it. You're, Thank you. you're a good man. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed the episode, uh, make sure to subscribe on YouTube, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. Uh, check us out on social media. It's across the line on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. We'll catch you guys next time for the next Football Friday. Thanks for watching.